I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. Hello. This is Dave Sobo. I'm calling from Save with Conrad. Well, how are you? One morning I heard Conrad mention something about, you know, refinancing and paying some debt off with it. So I was able to get a better rate, um, knock five years off the loan, and my payment stayed the same. So I went for it. What would you say was your favorite part about working with our team? Um, I, I would say just how quick and easy everything was. Uh, you know, Derek was great over the phone, and Conrad was great over the phone. It was like I knew both of them, and I don't know how I could have made my experience any better. We knocked five years off the loan. Wow. Um, just in the payments, that'd be about $65,000. It was easier to refinance the house than it was to buy the house. What would you say about working with Save with Conrad? Great experience. It was very easy. Uh, everything that he says on the podcast about saving the money and, and the amount of money he can save, uh, it's absolutely true. Would you recommend this to a friend or a, co- a co-worker? Uh, I, I absolutely would, and I have. That's awesome. <laughs> yep, absolutely, man. I, anytime I hear somebody say something, I definitely bring it up. Jason, thank you so much for your time, and, and I really appreciate you, and I hope you have a great day, and thank you for listening to all the shows. Yeah, man, thank you for calling. I appreciate it. That's, that's really cool. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Birds. Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Good God, Jamie Lee Curtis is hot. All righty. Well, so is Ricky Steamboat, and that is our topic today. We're excited to be talking about Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, uh, one of the all time greats, and we're excited. Uh, that you're here with us today, Bruce. I know you've been busier than a one-armed paper hanger. WrestleMania season is upon us. Uh, and, uh, by the time you're listening to this, uh, I guess, uh, there's some things going down in Saudi Arabia, huh? Well, you know, daddy. All righty. Let's keep moving here. Ricky, the dragon steamboat. Let's start at the beginning. I, I guess we should talk about when he first came into the company. Uh, that's 1985, but he had already had a long and successful career before he got there. He started his, uh, professional wrestling journey on the high school wrestling team. And I got to tell you, he's one of the rare guys whose real legal name may have been better than his wrestling name. Richard blood. Is that not a old, name? Old Dick, old Dick blood, Dick blood should have been a wrestling name. I mean, that's way better than steamboat. Am I wrong? You want to go out and now coming to the ring in red dick blood. Well, it sounds like a heel. Does it not? Well, it sounds like something. One of them goddamn venerally diseases. All righty. Uh, something like that. I do like the name Richard blood for real. And if he turned heel, he could be dick blood. And then you could have the baby faces cutting promos. Dick blood. I'm coming for you. I'm going to get me some of that dick blood. It would have been great. Yeah, Dick, I'm going to make you bleed. All right. <laughs> You're going to pay the price, Dick blood. Yeah. It's going to, when I'm done with you, I'm going to say, and he bloody Dick. 
Are we? Are we? Children? He beat Dick so hard. Oh. That- oh. <laughs> what? You started it. Oh, you know what? Come on. It's a shame that Blue Chew is not a sponsor this week because I have a natural transition or two. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about, you know, what his original plan was. He wanted to be a physical education teacher, goes to a two-year college. He's got the intentions of transferring to Tampa University to get those other two years. And a guidance counselor told him it would be a two- to three-year wait to get into Tampa to become a physical education teacher because so many teachers had transferred down to Florida from the north. So, so in 1971, his, uh, senior year at the high school there in Gulfport, he captures a state championship and Ricky says one night himself and a couple other guys drove across town to, uh, the old armory in Tampa. They sit front row wearing their amateur wrestling shirts from the high school. And, uh, he thinks this could be fun to watch professional wrestling and maybe be a participant. And it's piqued his interest a little bit. Uh, when his girlfriend moves away to a vocational school and, uh, his girlfriend's roommate at this vocational school is the daughter of Vern Ganya. Of course, eventually Vern one day visits his daughter and he starts talking to Ricky's girlfriend and she mentions that her boyfriend is a collegiate wrestler. Ta-da. What a cool little introduction. And what of, uh, I guess it's one of those. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. That probably exists for Vern Gagne on some level in professional wrestling. Does it not? Somewhat. And then she went on to marry Larry Zabisco. What a small world when you really fucking think about it. weird. Right. But you know, the, the, here, here's the great thing, which, which we'll, we'll get into. Well, okay. I'll, I'll tell the story when you ask me, how did Ricky steamboat get his name? When you go from Dick blood to all right, Steamboat. You know, before we go any further, uh, we're going to jump a little ahead here. Bruce, how did Ricky Steamboat get his name? Well, uh, Ricky went to work for Eddie Graham down in Florida, and he there was a famous wrestler that used to work in Florida by the name of Sam Steamboat, uh, also Hawaiian. And um, Eddie just took one look at him and says, you look like Sam Steamboat. We're changing your name to Ricky Steamboat. And Jack and Jerry Briscoe were also a part of this and in, in that they wanted him to be a steamboat. They, they thought about maybe making him a Briscoe, but they said he didn't look enough like a Briscoe. And the Briscoes are very funny about their name. So that's how they made him a steamboat, just by, hey, you look like somebody, so you're going to be his cousin or his nephew or his niece or something like that. There you go. And Eddie Graham named him because he... Didn't want people talking about Dick Dick's blood. So in Ricky's in 10th grade, he wrestles Mike Gossett, who was a senior. And, uh, Ricky remembered a parent with blonde hair and a bandage on his forehead, standing and cheering for Mike. And of course, Mike Gossett is Mike Graham and his dad in the crowd is Eddie Graham. Mike wound up beating Ricky on points. Eventually, uh, this all becomes a, a real thing. With you know how Eddie got his name? How did Eddie get his name? Because they were uh, going to New York, and Eddie and Dr. Jerry Graham was the original Graham. He ain't a Graham either. And Dr. Jerry Graham is the guy that Vince McMahon looked up to as a Ute, right? Yes, is a Ute. He wanted to be just like bleach his hair blonde, lit his cigars with $100 bills in the 50s. And by God, not he didn't light it with 50s. He lit it with hundreds, but it was in 1950s, 1960s, shit like that. Anyway... 
you shouldn't smoke kids. Um, Eddie to, they, they, he wanted to tag team with, uh, Dr. Jerry Graham. So he changed his name to Eddie Graham. So it's just little shit that will fucking stay with you for a lifetime. Arn Anderson looked like goddamn one of them Anderson boys. So they said, well, fuck, why don't we make you goddamn Anderson? Cause nobody gives a flying fuck about old Marty Lundy. I believe the person who actually suggested that was uh, JYD. He pointed out Marty getting dressed in the locker room and he remarked, uh, Hey, he looks like an Anderson and ta-da, there you go. Arn Anderson is born. Uh, these, oh, uh, these yeah. sort of origin stories of names are, uh, something we should probably revisit sometime. Anyway, Vern tells Ricky's girlfriend, have Ricky send me his resume, which Ricky did. One thing leads to another. And what do you know? Ricky's in Vern's training camp to become a professional wrestler. This is also the same training camp that, that a few years prior produced the nature boy, Ric Flair. Uh, it's pretty interesting. This old school style of training that, uh, Vern was doing. It's 12 weeks of rigorous training with Vern and his head trainer, who is going to go on to be known as the iron Sheik. Talk a little bit about Vern's school and how notorious it became. Well, shit, man. I mean, notorious or what you had to be a double tough motherfucker to last more than uh, a day there. So Vern was of the old school and Vern believed that if you weren't in shape and if you weren't physically superior to, to everyone around you, that by God, you just shouldn't be a wrestler. And Vern believed, you know, he, he came from that school, blow people up damn near kill them with physical exertion and then beat the shit out of them in the ring. And if they come back, well then maybe, maybe he'll spend some more time with them to train them and learn them the arts of the professional wrestling business, but earn, earn, Vern <laughs> train these guys, um, to, to be tough. I mean, you are, or you aren't tough, but Vern trained you to be tough and you had to be tough to survive his form of training. Uh, a lot of squats, a lot of running the steps and, uh, just beat downs. And you had to know your holds. You had to know how to wrestle. And if you didn't know it before you got there and you had the intestinal fortitude to lash, you sure as hell knew it if you made it all the way through because he just felt that way. Now, the funny thing about Burns school is, is if you were a shooter and you were an amateur wrestler, then to Vern, well, you didn't need as much training as some guy, some football player, some guy coming off the street who was just in good shape. And historically the shooters for the most part, that came out of Burns camp, never really made much of their career other than being great wrestlers um, and great shooters, but they didn't draw a lot of money. They didn't have personality because Vern wasn't a, a big proponent of larger-than-life personalities. Vern was all about the basic wrestling, so Vern liked wrestlers. Uh, Billy Robinson didn't have any personality, but good God, could he go. He was an, an incredible wrestler. Um, but a lot of the guys, man, that, that came through there that were amateurs never made it beyond 
opening or you know mid card matches, and you think of some of the greats that did come through there. Uh, you know, first name come to mind, Brad Rangans, who is an incredible teacher. First of all, good God, um, double tough, great trainer. Uh, I would suggest when we talk about great trainers, I would throw Brad Rangans in there because of some of the people that he's trained, and I think Brad kind of got it that. You know, you've got to have some personality as well. But um, nobody, you know, Sheik, Iron Sheik, that was after he changed his gimmick to the Iron Sheik. And it was just, it was a different philosophy. And, and getting through burn school was pure hell for those that actually were able to survive it. Those that did, I think, were better on the other side for it. So the training, as you said, and Vern's organization goes down in Minnesota where Vern is from. This happens for, uh, Dick blood in 1974 and 75. He makes his professional wrestling debut in the AWA using his real name, Rick blood. And of course he also wrestled a few times as Dick blood before the end of the year, though, he's back in the sunshine state here. He's working for Eddie Graham's championship wrestling from Florida. And that's where he picks up the last name steamboat. Uh, he was quoted as saying, I'll never forget it. I was sitting in Eddie's office with Jack and Jerry Briscoe. Eddie said, you look a lot like Sam steamboat. We're not going to say you're his son. We'll make you his nephew. And after Ricky wrestled for Vern a while, Vern called Eddie Graham and told him about Ricky. And after Ricky wrestled Mike in high school, Eddie kept tabs on Ricky's amateur career through his junior and senior year. So Eddie remembered who Ricky was when Vern told him about him. And of course, when Ricky came to Eddie's office, after Vern sent him there, Eddie told Ricky how he remembered it and kept tabs on him his whole life. And, uh, Ricky at that point had one of his first matches in Florida. The ring announcer said, Dick blood is unable to make it this evening. So the substitute is Ricky steamboat. The fans of course, remembered Sam steamboat. So it got Ricky over immediately. And Ricky said he forgot about his name change to steamboat. So he was wondering what the announcer was talking about. And he went over and pulled the announcer and said, Hey, I'm Dick blood. I'm here. And the announcer said, shut up and get in your corner. And, uh, the name change of course, definitely worked. And Eddie would decide to team, uh, Ricky and his son, Mike together because Eddie and Sam steamboat were a team and Eddie wanted to put them against the Hollywood blondes, buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown. Of course, this is before Steve Austin and Brian Pillman, but I guess that's kind of fun because years later, Ricky would work with a different set of Hollywood blondes, Pillman and Austin. Talk to me a little bit about buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown, this version of the Hollywood blinds. I don't think we've talked about them ever before. Well, shit, they were, I believe, and they may have started in Florida, but I know that they were a team in actually Hollywood, but also the first time that I ever saw them was in Louisiana and they look like shit. If you ask me, they both looked, you know, old and, kind of crappy um for whatever reason they, they buddy roberts always looked old define old and crappy i'm i'm, I'm really i don't know what to say didn't have bot didn't have like very athletic body um and just you know the, you know those people that always look like they they're 50 they, they could be 22 and they look like they're 50 i don't know what that I'm was saying the way old, they looked old and crappy just fucking tickled me as a descriptor thank you for that and keep going. Well, they did. And they looked like they wanted to be young and hip and cool. And Buddy was was obviously a lot younger than he looked, but they were the Hollywood blondes and, and Buddy, of course, 
the curse of the good worker. You know, Buddy Roberts was an unbelievable worker, but Buddy wasn't very colorful when the camera was on. He was extremely colorful <laughs> when the camera was off. Um, but they were a, a pretty good, you know, middle of the road uh, journeyman tag team. And when Jerry finally hung it up, and, and Bill Watts is the one that put Buddy Roberts with the Freebirds, and of course Michael and, and Bam Bam were like, "We ain't gonna, we don't need no third Freebird, do do do." Just telling you, fuck this shit. We ain't, we don't need no Buddy Rogers with us to, to fucking beat. What the fuck we gonna do with that? Fast forward a few years and. Um, they figured it out, I think. So, uh, yeah, that was the, the Hollywood Blondes. They were, they were pretty good. Two really good workers in the ring. Buddy, obviously, much better than Jerry. Um, but Buddy was a workhorse, and Buddy was the one that went in, got his ass kicked, and Jerry got the heat. He was the bump machine. You know, that became yeah. the uh, the reputation of Buddy Roberts as a member of the Freebirds. and. After working for championship wrestling from Florida for about a year, he uh, goes to the Carolinas and makes a name for himself. Of course, with Jim Crockett promotions, it's important to remember that as he's making these different shots and, and wandering from territory to territory, Ricky's still under contract to Vern. And this is something that doesn't happen these days, but it certainly happened and was very common back in those days. If you were trained by a guy, um, he got 10% of your earnings. So. As he's working in Florida and the Carolinas, he's still sending a check to send to, for ten percent to Vern Gagne, right? Yep, and that was you know same thing that Moolah did. Um, same thing that if if you went through and they also helped you get booked. So by having Vern Gagne as your trainer and Vern being able to put a word in for you, opened a lot of doors. And. By doing that, you know, how people feel about it, whether they should have or they shouldn't have, um, that was, that, that was the way it was. And, and yeah. Vern helped you throughout your career. Yeah. And, and in fairness, I didn't mention that he would help you get booked, but no, that's accurate. You know, getting a call from random guy you've never heard of wrestler number 12, uh, who knows what that is. But when, when Vern Gagne calls and says, Hey, I got a guy that carries a lot of weight with a promoter and, and you get opportunities. Uh, I got a guy. I got a guy. Hey, yo, Connie. I got, I got a guy. guy. Uh, from there, Ole Anderson, uh, who was booking Florida at the time, tells Ricky that it was time to move on because he'd been there for 13 months. So Ricky called Vern, and Vern wants think, to send think him. about that for a minute. <laughs> You've been here too long. You've been here 13 months. Yeah. Got got to freshen it up. Well, also too, it's worth mentioning. These guys, and I guess this counts now on the television air, cause we're seeing it every week, but you run in the same town every single week. So yeah, if, if I'm seeing you every single week for 13 months, I could see how someone would say, got to freshen it up. And, and that's what was happening here. You need a fresh coat of paint, paint a coat, paint, paint. a coat. There you go. You got it. So no. Ricky okay. calls Vern. Vern wants to send him to Calgary. Ricky has a friend who knew a ref in Calgary. And the guy tells him the territory was down and they're only getting like 25 bucks a night. And they got to drive a lot of miles. So Ricky decides to tell Vern that he didn't want to go to Calgary and gave him those reasons. Vern didn't like that. And Ricky tells him, or and he tells Ricky, find your own territory to go to. So he goes back and tells Ollie what happened. And Ollie says, he'll try to figure something out. A week later, Ollie tells him you're going to the Carolinas. It's only 250 miles up the road. So here comes Ricky to Jim Crockett promotions 
and steamboat's going to cut his teeth there in a big way, working with some of the best wrestlers of the era, Wahoo McDaniel, Paul Jones, Rich, uh, Rick Flair. In fact, Ricky won his first singles title, the mid Atlantic TV title from Rick Flair. And if you ask those guys, even though fans these days say, oh, the best matches ever or their trilogy from 1989, they would say, no, our best matches were here for the TV title. Did you ever have a chance to see any of those matches in person? I don't think there's a ton of videotape out for, for those. No, I, no, I didn't. Uh, that was mid Atlantic. I was in Texas by God that time. So never really saw that much of it. Now I, you know, I had heard over the years about Rick Steamboat and, and you saw him in the, the wrestling magazines, if you will. Um, it was funny in Florida, and that's how I go back to the, the, the story about Steamboat in his name and, and Don Morocco, which he's just Don Morocco. Um, but when Morocco came into Florida, the reason they brought Morocco to come into Florida was because he looked like Jack Briscoe. Mm. And people looked at him and thought, oh, my God, you know, it's Jack Briscoe. Jack was such a big star that they, they would try and recreate Jack. And in some ways, that was a feeling with Rick Steamboat and, and some of these different guys that would come in. And it was just, you would see them and look, for example, in, in Texas, you'd look at that and go, oh, my God, hey, this is this Ricky Steamboat, good-looking guy, seems to be you know, working on top with wherever he's working and, and looked like, if they were in the magazine, they had to be a major talent, right? Right. So that's, that's all you had. I mean... I don't know that we talk about that enough in this era, but how important was the distribution of the old quote unquote after mags, uh, to the boys? Well, uh, it actually was very important. I, I, the archivist at the WWE, they, they got a lot of Paul Bosch's files and one day I'm going to go through there and go back through them. But we had, I would say two, four, maybe 10 or 12 full size, like big, tall file cabinets, kids. For those of you that don't know what a file cabinet is, it's, it's a large, uh, everybody knows what a file cabinet is. No, but I don't think, I don't know that they do anymore. Conrad, that's my problem. I'm, that, I'm confused with these younger generation of you guys. How many file cabinets do you have in your office? Uh, probably six. Okay. Double that. And in one room. No, you, uh, you have the big wide ones. I'm talking about the old school file cabinets. Yeah, yeah, and the, shit. A little, but yeah, I got legal files. You don't need yeah, legal files. These are letter size file, right, right, file right. cabinets. So, but they were full of resumes. Let's call it of how the old timers used to come into a territory. And what you did is you would take an eight by 10 publicity photo. You would write your name and your phone number on the back of it. Sometimes you'd enclose a letter with it, say, hey, my name is Conrad Thompson. I'm going by the uh, Alabama Dream, and my gimmick is that I fucking save people money on mortgages and so on and so forth. I've worked on top for 20 years, you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's some references. Or you just on the back of your picture have your name and your phone number, and that's it. And we used to, everyone that came in, every single one, man, if a guy sent a letter or if a guy sent a picture, we put it in a file 
and we filed it so that we had it. Paul will take a look at it and go, oh, hey, this guy looks good. Um, if you had a letter, obviously that got you a lot further other than just a plain picture with a phone number because you didn't know that much about you. But guys got booked that way. Right. Here's my picture. Here's my phone number. Hey, I'm looking for a big guy. This guy looks interesting. Uh, when can you start, kid? And that's how you got booked back in the day. So it was just a, a different time. Also, if you are, are looking at the wrestling magazines that, that we're talking about, you see the same guy on the cover from a certain territory. Usually it was New York because that's where they were based. So Bruno was the biggest star in the world to them because that's where they lived. Hang on. They and them pronouns, pal. And goddamn Yankee motherfuckers, New Yorkers. No, no. Hang on. The magazine distributors were based in New York. Yeah. Okay. You didn't say it. You just said they and them. They and well, them. Well, them, them motherfuckers. Yeah. The magazine them. motherfuckers. Got it. The magazine motherfuckers. Right. And uh, sometimes them Yankee bastards would come down and shoot pictures in Texas and Florida and just burn. Um, but then they eventually got correspondence. They had people that took pictures locally and would send them in. If they were good enough, then the Yankee magazine editors would write a story about it. Totally fiction. I mean, 98% of those magazines, the stories and shit were all fiction. Yeah, just made up horseshit. Just based off of whatever great pictures that they may get from some of their photographers. But it was a, a critical piece to getting booked and moving around and making money and, and all of that. Yeah, because you'd see you'd see someone there and go, oh, holy shit, man, this guy looks good. And then you, you look at the picture, see who they're working with. Maybe you call them and say, hey, what kind of worker is this guy? Oh, here's his number. And if you didn't have that, you, you probably weren't making a lot of money. And, um, well, you probably carried a balance on your credit cards and a lot of those cards comes with high interest rates and it's too bad that lightstream.com wasn't a thing back then. Cause some of the biz oils could have saved a lot of kids ash over at lightstream.com. It's easier to lower your interest rate and save a bundle with a Lightstream credit card consolidation loan. We're talking about getting a rate as low as 5.95% APR with auto pay. And here's the deal. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience. And that's exactly what they deliver. You can get a loan from 5,000 to a hundred thousand dollars. And there are absolutely no fees. And you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. And I have used Lightstream. I've told the story ad nauseum here. I was shopping for a car loan years ago, wanted to negotiate like a cash buyer. I didn't like the terms that I was being offered at the local dealer. I went to lightstream.com, got the cheapest interest rate I've ever had in my life. They overnighted me a check. I went back to the dealer, wrote a check the next day. It was automatically drafted out of my account. I had a phenomenal rate. It's still the best rate I've ever had on a car loan. I can't recommend it enough. If you have good credit and you're overpaying with high interest rate credit cards, you've got to do this. Apply today to get a special interest rate discount and save even more. And the only way to get the discount is to go to lightstream.com slash wrestle. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com, lightstream.com, forward slash wrestle. Of course, this is subject to credit approval. Rate includes a half a percent auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash wrestle for more information. And now a little more information about Ricky Steamboat here. Over the next eight years, he has a series of matches uh, and of course captures tons of gold, including the NWA United States championship on three separate occasions 
and the NWA tag team titles six times, once with Paul Jones and five times with Jay Youngblood. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about Jay Youngblood. Talk to me a little bit about him as a tag team partner with Ricky and why we don't hear more of Jay these days. Because he's dead. Jay Youngblood was uh, one of Ricky Romero's sons, and Ricky Romero was a great, great talent in the Southwest, let's call it, uh, from, I believe they're from New Mexico, Albuquerque area, but he worked for the Funks, Amarillo, Lubbock, El Paso, the majority of his career. And Ricky was just an unbelievable babyface talent, man. And, and I remember Ricky Romero from El Paso being a kid. And then when we went to Houston, there was no more Ricky Romero. We had Jose Lothario. But I remember when Paul tried to bring Ricky Romero in, it just didn't work. They didn't accept him. It wasn't it wasn't their Jose Lothario. And but Ricky Romero, great star, had several kids, uh, Mark J, um, Ricky Jr. But they all worked as is the young bloods. And I think that it was they had some Native American blood in them, I believe. I don't know. I don't want to get the phone call from Jerry Briscoe and have him crucify me. But uh, the Young Bloods were an unbelievable team, unbelievable talent. Jay, in particular, Jay was had a lot of personality, and Jay and Rick Steamboat is a tag team just gelled, and they, you know. God makes many pairs of them, and, and pairing those two, I, I saw a lot of tape on them. They were a tremendous tag team, a lot of fire, great babyface tag team, and some unbelievable matches that I've seen with the Youngblood, uh, Jay Youngblood and Ricky Steamboat against Jack and Jerry Briscoe that would hold up today. Just really, really good shit. They were believable, and it was one of those that worked. They, they looked like they belonged together. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, Ricky also holds the NWA mid-Atlantic heavyweight title twice. And he wears the mid-Atlantic tag titles four times, three times with Paul Jones, once with Jay Youngblood, the TV title two times. I mean, he has taken to the Carolina territory, uh, like few others. I mean, he becomes a real staple here. And after being in a team with Jay Youngblood for many years, Ricky finally makes the decision. It was time that he goes back to being a singles wrestler. Dusty takes over the book. And he puts Ricky and Tully Blanchard together for a feud over Tully's TV title. And they start off in matches where the title was on the line for the first 10 minutes. And then Ricky would win in about 12 minutes. And then it was stretched to 15 minutes for the title, but Ricky would win in 16 or 17 minutes. So even though Ricky was winning the matches, Tully's still keeping the television title. That's a pretty creative way to book, huh? Okay. All right. Tell you something, Blanchard. Okay, I put up the ten thousand dollars. You thinking that you're gonna walk away with my ten grand? I put up the ten thousand dollars to Steve get you I to carried you time carried and time you again, time and time again. I carried you. Carried time you. limit. Time carried. limit. Time limit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Then Dusty booked himself with Tully. And Dusty beats him to win the title. Of course, yeah. And after that, Ricky says, "Okay, I see the writing on the wall." Dusty also wanted Ricky, uh, to, uh, be paired with uh, a newcomer, Nikita Koloff. And when they started, Nikita was to attack Ricky from behind and he hit Ricky so hard with the uh, Russian sickle that Ricky is, uh, seeing stars. 
Yeah. Listen, we love Dusty Rhodes here on the show, but a lot of guys took issue with the way Dusty was booking. And I'm sure you heard about this from Ricky when you guys visited over the years that he was not happy with the way this whole TV title thing went down. What do you remember hearing about that story? You know, not, not a whole lot. I, I think the guys don't get on one thing, but they'll get on overall just perception and, and how they're used. And if they feel that they're being taken advantage of and, or not being used properly, that's what the six in their craw. And then they don't necessarily want to go any further than that there. They want to go someplace new where they're going to have an opportunity with a brand new audience that hasn't been subjected to this. And I, and I think that Ricky kind of felt that way with dusty being the booker there and felt that he was only going to go so far. Well, not long after this, Ricky gets a call from a fellow named George Scott who's working for the WWF at the time. Of course, George was instrumental in putting Ricky and flair together. When Ricky first got to the Carolinas and in 85, Ricky makes the decision. It's time to do what a lot of guys are doing from various territories around the country in this era and join the world wrestling federation from Hawaii weighing 237 pounds. Ricky steamboat. Yes, sir. And the steamers here over the top rope, Ricky steamboat, a premier athlete in every respect. Bruno, you've been following his career for some time. I know Ricky Steamboat very well, but this is one of the more exciting wrestlers in the ring today. He's truly a great athlete, and I'll tell you, when he's in that ring, you see nothing but great action. Really, really a fine athlete. And a good look at the uh, physique on the steamer, taking nothing away from that of uh, Mr. Lombardi. Ricky gets a win over Steve Lombardi in his WWF debut. Of course, we know Steve as the Brooklyn Brawler these days. Steamboat is given the nickname The Dragon. Mostly because of his resemblance to Bruce Lee. He starts to wear long tights, which he kept doing for the rest of his career. And he wrestled on the first WrestleMania in 1985 in the third match, defeating Matt Bourne, who would go on to be Doink, as we know. Bruce, I don't know that we've talked about this. Did you watch WrestleMania 1 on closed circuit TV, or when did you see it? I watched it live on closed circuit TV in the Astro Arena in Houston, Texas. What was the, uh, the feeling as a fan at the time to get to see that well it was it was incredible because a i was skeptical especially in houston of them being able to draw any kind of an audience especially to a i think it's like an eight thousand seat arena and it was the astro arena which was not a popular arena. It was part of the Astrodome complex. So there was the Astrodome, there was Astro Hall, and then there was the Astro Arena. Um, one of the most fan-friendly thing in the world. But yet, I I bet you that they probably had 3,000 people there watching one big screen. It's remarkable. Um, so yeah, that was that was impressive. And that was what made me go, hmm... Times may be changing, kids. And started thinking about other ways to conduct business. Well, Ricky felt the same way when he got his first check for his first action figure. Of course, this is uh, an old LJN from the WWF. His first check, and keep in mind, this is the mid-80s, 65 grand. These first checks from the LJN action figures become legendary in pro wrestling. And uh, 
very quickly, everybody realizes there's money in them, their heels. Do they not? Hell yeah. And, and the payoffs from some of the bigger gates and business was good for them at that time. But yes, you didn't have to do anything. You weren't taking any bumps and you're getting this huge check for them putting out a doll on me. Goddamn action figure, Conrad. It's tremendous. He starts a feud with, uh, Mr. Fuji and Don Morocco. And on the September 14th, 1985 edition of championship wrestling steamboat defeats Mr. Fuji. But after his victory, he's attacked by Morocco. And, uh, during a, an episode of WWF championship wrestling steamboat, Morocco were scheduled for a match that never officially started after Morocco jumped steamboat before the bell. And following the beatdown, Morocco and Fuji then used Steamboat's karate black belt to hang him outside the ring from the top rope before Steamboat was finally saved by Tito Santana and Junkyard Dog. On the November 2nd, Saturday night's main event, he defeats Fuji in a Kung Fu challenge. That's a real thing. Everybody was Kung Fu fighting. Everybody was fast as lightning. Yeah. On January yeah, 4th. Right. Wasn't that real karate shit? I'm a karate man. Ever mentioned, ever tell you, Conrad? I'm a three-time black belt Hall of Famer. I have heard that. I have heard that. At the Wrestling Classic right, event, just, Ricky's in the tournament and wrestles Davy Boy Smith in round one, which was very rare at the time, having two baby faces wrestle against each other. Ricky gets the win after Davy crotches himself on the ropes and can't continue. And the next round, and a preview of what we would see for years to come, Ricky would lose to Randy Savage after Randy hit him with the brass knucks. At WrestleMania 2, he picked up a win over Hercules Hernandez. I know you weren't there at the time, but Bret Hart has said that he was originally supposed to wrestle Ricky at WrestleMania 2, but it was changed to Hercules. Did you ever hear that? No. Yeah, I have zero knowledge of, of that backstory any way, shape, or form. Well, here's what a lot of us remember for the first time of Ricky in the WWF. He starts a feud with Jake Roberts and they're supposed to wrestle on the May 3rd, Saturday night's main event, but Jake attacks Ricky before the match and DDTs him on the floor. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. Vince McMahon and Booker George Scott are both warning Jake to deliver the DDT or they both want Jake to deliver the DDT on the floor, but Jake knows there's no mats out there to protect steamboat. So he refused saying that doing the move that way would leave the baby face vulnerable to a severe injury. Nevertheless, McMahon and Scott insisted it be done. And when steamboat promises, he could protect himself. Jake decides to do it. Unfortunately, that didn't exactly work out. Steamboat wasn't able to prevent his head from hitting the concrete floor. He's legitimately knocked unconscious and concussed. And Jake's has said in interviews since the sound of Ricky's head hitting the floor was like a watermelon bursting. This is quite a moment on Saturday night's main event. And if you go back and watch it, you can see he is just out like a light. When did you first see this DDT on the floor? And, uh, obviously we've learned there's maybe a better way to take it and never do that on concrete again. Yeah, I, I would have to kind of agree with Jake on that one and Ricky going out, but I can also see Ricky believing that he could have protected himself and that it would have been all right. So you know, let, let's go do it. And by God, it's good for the business. And I saw it first time on Saturday night's main event, like everybody else, it looked vicious because it was, and it, it was 
something that was able to, to catapult both of those guys, in my opinion, to to bigger and better things. So to that, it worked. To Ricky's head, bummer. Uh, that part doesn't work. But I think the end rewards were. I don't know if it was worth it or not, but you know, you know, it, it paid off. The swelling is so severe that it blacks both of his eyes. He's got a giant alien knot on the front of his head. I mean, he's in bad shape for a while, but eventually they do get to wrestle the match. It's a snake pit match at the big event in Toronto. Uh, 74,000 fans. Ricky wins with a small package. And from there, Ricky starts his legendary feud with the great Randy Savage over the intercontinental title on the November 22nd, 1986 episode of superstars steamboat and Savage have a match for the title and steamboat loses the match by count out. But after the match, this is what we all remember. So well, Savage continues to assault him and injure steamboats larynx with the ring bell by putting him over the guardrail and coming down on his ramming his throat into the rail and it's quite a spectacle and a feud has started in a big way on the January 3rd, 87 Saturday night's main event steamboat returns from the injury and prevents Savage from attacking George, the animal steel, just like he'd done to him. And now the stage is set WrestleMania three, what most people believe to be the greatest WrestleMania match ever at the time. And it would be a standard that people wouldn't even really debate until WrestleMania 10. All right, Ricky, the yeah. and Steve both somewhat special. George, the animal steel in your corner. However, in my opinion, this could be your last shot at Randy Savage and the Intercontinental title. My last opportunity. Randy Savage, the day has finally come. The minutes, the seconds, we have reached our moment. As you and I climb into the ring, we clash like two titans. But there will only be one winner. One more This dragon will scorch your back. I will come away with the championship belt and see you horizon. They get 14 and a half minutes. If you go back and look in the observer, he got four and a half stars. Definitely should have been five. It is a false finish bonanza. And um, Steamboat was critical of Randy Savage, saying that he was a little overprepared. Steamboat was a little old school coming up in the Carolinas. You called everything in the ring. Savage wanted to, you know, sort of have everything mapped out in a major way. So there's page and page and page of notes of here's exactly what we want to do. But the result is a beautiful match. What'd you think of this match? The first time you saw it, I thought it was excellent. Um, it was the first pay-per-view event I ever ordered in my life. Um, and I didn't even order it. The girl I was dating at the time, got her parents. They had, cause not all cable systems had pay-per-view and, and her parents did. And I remember, um, not being the favorite person, <laughs> their favorite person in the world. Um, but they, they let me go over and watch WrestleMania three. And, and that was the spectacle of that got all of them in like, Oh my God, there's all that people, all those people there to see wrestling. What the, and I mean, but how many people are watching at home? And I'm like, well, millions. Um, 
the match, yeah, the match stuck out. I thought it was a, a great, great match. It was one of those that kept you on the edge of your seat because they were trying to win. And that's what gets lost with all this flip-flying, flippy-flop bullshit where nobody tries to win a match. Um, you just want to do spots and, and work, look around and want people to applaud you and shit. The idea of a match is to win. The idea of the match is to either gain a pinfall or a submission <laughs> to win the match. Um, so... That was the beauty of this match was both guys were the, the championship meant something. The rivalry meant something. And it was a, it, it was a finale had a finality to it to, to get to that point. And I thought they, they worked it tremendously well. Really one of the all time great matches go out of your way to see it. If you haven't seen it, uh, we've talked about this before, but maybe my timeline is getting a little screwy. Had you already committed to coming in? I mean, I know that that Bosch was working a little bit with Vince during this era, and you guys are going to show that match a lot on TV. But had you already committed to coming to work for Vince at this point, or or when this show airs, or or not yet? I had been talking to Vince, yes, and I had been talking to Vince since November, December of '86. Whenever I came back from my mono and got my $400 payday for being out for 10 weeks. Um, so I've been talking to Vince since before the first of the year and all the way through this. And when I think about it today, it completely blows my mind. I know everybody was in a different place in 1987. You weren't even born yet. Um, come on. Yes, I was. How old were you? How, uh, in 87, I was six. Okay. Well, some of our listeners weren't even born yeah, then. Yeah. You were six. Yes. And um, Vince called me the day before WrestleMania, or the night before. And really quick conversation, just, um, hey, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know, we're, we're still on on track and everything. And uh, we, have a, we have a little show tomorrow. A little show. A little show tomorrow uh, on pay-per-view. If you get a chance, check it out. I think it's going to be really cool. And, of course, I did. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, sir, man, I'm going to watch it. Uh, told him the whole story and everything. He said, all right, you know, let me know what you think. And that's back when you would send letters, typewritten letters. Sure. Didn't have, didn't have computers, didn't have email, didn't have cell phones. And so I was prepared, you know, to write. And I did, I took my notes and wrote a letter of everything I thought about WrestleMania three. Um, but knowing what I know now on how crazy and how, insane things are the week leading up to WrestleMania. And I'm thinking this is the first time that he's in this big stadium, 93,000 people in, in Pontiac and Hulk and Andre, all of the shit going on in his world. And he's calling you. And he took two minutes out of his time, either in the hotel or his office or wherever the hell he was to call me a kid that he had never met at that point who had talked to on the phone several times to say, Hey, be sure and watch. Let me know what you think. And when I 
got there and I remember my first WrestleMania at Trump Plaza uh, thinking, how in the fuck would this guy even have time? And as years went on, it became even more just to think that he'd be able to do that. You know, I, I get so busy that I don't call my family for days when I'm on the road because you just, you're, you're going, going, going. Um, so that is my takeaway from WrestleMania three that just blew my mind, uh, especially after I got up there and realized the enormity of it all. Well, after WrestleMania, Ricky's working a lot of matches on the house shows with Randy. Of course they're doing WrestleMania rematches around the horn. And, uh, a lot of those matches are even inside of a cage. On June 2nd, 1987 in Buffalo, New York, the honky tonk man would shock the wrestling world when he defeated Ricky Steamboat to win the intercontinental title. Uh, Ricky has said that, uh, he was told he was going to hold the intercontinental title for a year. And he said he felt like Hulk had some influence on the decision for honky to tank the title from him. There's been rumors for a long time that the gist was Ricky was asking for time off. Not long after winning the belt, he has recently given his wife has recently given birth to a young son and that's why Vince took it off of him and the rumor and innuendo that's gone around for a long time is that it was supposed to be Butch Reed to beat Ricky for the title that night he no showed Vince and Hulk are talking in the hall about what to do honky walks by and allegedly Hulk said something like what about him and Vince went with it undeserved title opportunity in my book why Is that true? What can you tell us about this? Yeah, I, I don't, I, I think that's a, a legend that's out there. I wasn't a part of that. So I, I can't tell you if that's true or not. I know that going into it, when we did that, that we knew that honky was going to defeat Ricky for the championship, but I think there was a little bit more to it that Rick just having a baby and what have you was looking at time on the road, not wanting to work as much too. So there's a couple, there are two sides to every story and Vince looking at, well, if he doesn't want to work all the time, I need my intercontinental champion on all the live events and I I need him everywhere. And Rick doesn't want to necessarily do that. Then maybe they needed to make a change. That was what I heard on my side of things. So I wasn't involved in it, but that's, what I know from the other side. Ricky said dropping the title so fast after winning it hurt his feelings more than anything. He thought he was going to be a staple of the company coming out of WrestleMania three, especially with all the feedback that he and Randy had gotten for their match. And while we're sp- speaking of Hulk, Ricky has gone on record as saying that he and Hulk were never really friends and didn't hang out outside of the ring. Uh, even though they did team up a few times on house shows. Do you think there was ever an issue between the two or was it just two different philosophies and approaches towards professional wrestling? Yeah, I just think it was just two, two different people from two different worlds. Um, you don't have to be friends with everybody that you work with and and hang out with everybody on the roster. I just think that they were, were different, different guys at a different time doing different things. So not long after Ricky drops the title to honky, he tells Vince, even though he initially asked for two weeks off, he's going to take six months off. And he did. 
And, uh, Ricky said he never signed a contract during this time. And, uh, he's going to come back around the time of the first survivor series. What do you remember about, uh, Ricky taking this big long break? Well, I think that was again, part of the contention and part of the reason why Vince made the changes that he made with the intercontinental championship, because Ricky didn't want to work as much and had the baby and was just looking to not be full time. And then after that, it was an excuse to, well, if I'm not the champion. I could take all this time off and spend with my family. It's worth mentioning. And that's all really, really equated to. I do think we should mention that in this era, the company's not just running one house show loop at different times. That, that was the case. Uh, even now there's two loops. There's a SmackDown loop and a raw loop, but once upon a time, there weren't just two, there were three. So you had an A show, a B show and a C show. So of course, Hulk Hogan would main event your A show, but your B show would usually be carried by the intercontinental title, right? Yeah, exactly. And it was, that was important. Yeah, definitely. And we, we didn't even necessarily because the market would indicate, you know, the A show and the B show, the, the larger, the market, um, that would be the A show. But I think that both, both live event cards, when you look at them in their totality were, could have headlined anywhere. I sound like gorilla monsoon. It would have been a main event anywhere in the world. Brooklyn brawler versus Cody Evans. I don't know who either one of those guys are, but at the 87 survivor series, Ricky's going to wind up teaming with Randy Savage, his old nemesis, Brutus beefcake, Jim Duggan, and Jake Roberts to take on the honky tonk man, Harley race, Danny Davis, Hercules, and Ron bass. Kind of weird to see Ricky on the same team with Randy considering a year prior, Randy tried to crush his throat on a guardrail, but time heals all wounds, I guess in the match, Ricky doesn't get any eliminations. But he is one of the uh, survivors along with Randy Savage and Jake Roberts. So even though he did take this long break, Vince definitely still sees something in him for him to be paired with those guys. Then Ricky starts a uh, brief feud with Rick Rude, defeats him by DQ with the first Royal Rumble event, but we don't really see him in an angle after that. That takes us to WrestleMania 4. It's a tournament for the world title. We did a full show on WrestleMania 4, which of course is available in our archives. Ricky would wrestle Greg the Hammer Valentine in round one to the tournament. And, uh, Ricky said that he remembered seeing the bracket for the tournament and assumed he'd go over Valentine. He saw that the winner of the match would face Savage in the next round. And he knew Savage was going to win the tournament. So he figured he would lose to Savage in round two, returning the favor from WrestleMania three. And Ricky says that chief Jay Strongbow told him he was going to have to put over Valentine in round one. And Ricky's kind of surprised by that. He remembers telling his wife and not long after that, she went to the merch table and a bunch of the wrestlers had merch there. But Ricky didn't have anything for sale from the company at the stand. And not too terribly long after WrestleMania four, Ricky gave his notice that he was leaving the company. He said he didn't have much of a discussion with Vince, but he felt like he was being made an example of what do you take of, uh, Ricky steamboats recollection of the way things went down from his perspective. Well, I mean, you can look at it from your perspective all you want. You have to look at it from a business perspective perspective of what we were trying to do with Randy Savage. The WrestleMania four tournament was laid out for Randy Savage, and that was to make Randy the next champion and the next guy. While, yes, there was history there with Ricky and Savage, from a babyface perspective, you wanted Randy on his 
way to the championship on that one night, you wanted Randy to be, be working with heels, traditional heel, so that it was a clear cut. I want Randy to win. Randy's my guy. That muddies it if you put Steamboat in there because Steamboat was popular. Steamboat was a strong baby face. I think that would have hurt Randy more than would have helped him. So from Ricky's point of view, yeah, I want to I want to be in that spot. From a business point of view, it doesn't make sense. Any surprise to you where he made the decision to leave? You know, I, I didn't know Ricky that well at the time. So not really one way or the other. And it just feels I, like by I, that point, the, the, the race is effectively over. I mean, if you're paying attention, you know, that this is where all the eyeballs are. This is where all the tickets are going to be sold. This is where all the television ratings are going to be. I mean, obviously Jim Crockett's still around, but this is not the same thing. And you know, they're not going to make it much longer. Meanwhile, the WWF train just continues to roll and it feels like it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. If you're in that business, it does feel like you want to find a way by hook or crook to be a part of the company and then to be there and have some spots and opportunities where you're featured. And then the first time it feels like you're not, or maybe the second time it feels like you're not, you just bail. I don't know that that comes off as weird to me. Uh, and I don't know if it well, was just Conrad. A- and I think, look, you and I've had this discussion in the mortgage office before where you've had top producers that have left you for opportunities that they felt were better on the other side. Sure. I would say that probably 90% of them found out when they got to the other side, that the grass wasn't necessarily as green over there is they were led to believe. And that has happened in, in our business all the time to where if someone is unhappy for whatever reason, whether it be creatively, whether it be, that their significant other feels they're not spending enough time at home and that, by God, you know, I didn't like the way that they had you walk to the ring that night. And you hear all this noise and all of this shit. There's always going to be an alternative. The grass is greener on the other side. And even then, you know, you talk about Jim Crockett and Jim Crockett promotions where they appeared in some ways to be doing business when in reality they were in a financial nightmare and they weren't doing what the, you know, alleged success would have led you to believe because behind the scenes there were other things that were going on that they were bleeding money and weren't, they weren't going to be in the business very much longer. So you're always going to have that. And you're always going to have somebody say, Hey, over here, we're making this much money. Hey, over here, man, our trips are, we're only, we're only working a couple days a week, man. You go in and you do TV, you do this, you do that. And, and everything's easy. And it's so much better over here, man. The catering. Oh my God. The catering, they'll, they'll cook a steak for you to order. Um, everything can be spun. And I think that, that just happens in business uh, in general where guys will feel that where I am right now, I could be doing so much better somewhere else. If only. Yeah. And it's a weird deal. I think very few, you know, does it, doesn't work out that way. 
Fair to say. Uh, of course, we know Ricky's going to return to the NWA in January of 89. The arrival of the mystery partner, Mr. X. And we hear the music in the background. That will bring to the ring Eddie Gilbert's mystery partner here, fans. Flair and Wyndham are anxiously awaiting the arrival of Eddie Gilbert's partner. And Tony, I don't, I don't believe what we're seeing here. Geometric Steamboat. It's the Dragon. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat will be the partner of Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert in this main event. He's going to have a series of incredible matches with Ric Flair, including becoming the world champion on February 20th on pay-per-view, the shot town rumble, still one of the all-time great matches, uh, five stars in the observer. I'm sure you've seen this trilogy of matches, um, in this era, are you watching NWA and WCW pay-per-views? And, and if so, are you watching them by yourself? Are you going over to Finkel's house? Does Vince ever see any of it? What can you tell us about competitor pay-per-views in that era? You know, I think I maybe watched over over the years, maybe one, maybe two with Vince. But Howard, yeah, Howard, we would we'd share Pat would get it, Howard would get it, whatever. We'd all go over and watch it. Um, you're watching your competition. Now, I didn't I didn't get to watch TBS as much, but when they had a big show, yeah, we'd watch it and and see what was going on with it and compare and contrast. When you're watching these pay-per-views with your other WWE or WWF co-workers at the time, are you, um, are you guys watching in like, a let's, let's sort of, it's like a pop-up video. Oh, look at this fucking guy. And we're making fun of it. Or is it, there's some of that and maybe there's some, oh shit, we got to get a hold of this guy. Uh, I think if there was a new guy that wasn't on the radar, we'd look at sometimes go, who the fuck is that? And, and try and get more information, but it was more just kind of watching, seeing what they were doing and, and seeing who's out there and what the hell's going on on the other side. But yeah, there were, there were guys every once in a while that you would think that, holy shit, where'd he come from? Right. I don't know. It's just fascinating to think about you guys gathered around to watch. Um, a competitor pay-per-view were you surprised to see Ricky as the NWA world champion? I mean, he was obviously a different style wrestler than what Vince was looking for at the time, even though you guys were still pushing the babyface champion, you know, he wanted a Hulk Hogan, not necessarily a Ricky steamboat. Were you surprised that they went that direction with uh, steamboat? I wasn't no, because it was a different territory. It was a different style of, of booking and a different audience that liked that. And Ricky matched up with flair. <laughs> Rick matched up with flair. Hey, could be called Rick flair. No steamboat matched up with flair and they created some classics and they were fun to watch whether no matter what, I mean, we enjoyed watching those matches. They were, they were good matches. If you enjoy watching wrestling, then you would enjoy watching that. And they put on clinics when they went out and, and had these matches. So it was a different audience. It was a different type of promotion with Crockett promotions. They, they, they weren't promoting the glitz and the glamor and the larger than life. They were promoting, we wrestle. So Ricky was perfect for that. You, uh, you saw the trilogy of matches with flair and steamboat. Did you know it? I did, but I, I couldn't tell one 
one from the other, to be honest with you. Well, at the time, did you think that you were watching one of the greatest matches ever, or was it just another match? Because those matches sort of grew in lore and a lot of people look back at wrestling from back in the day with rose colored glasses and say, Oh, it was the best shit. And then they go back and watch it and it doesn't necessarily stand up to the test of time. I think these do, I think they're, they're great matches today and they were great matches back then. What say you, did you think you were watching one of the all time great matches at the time? I think I was watching damn good matches. I don't know about greatest of all time because you know, this will, when you, when you look at things, I, I look at it through different lenses. Right. I look at what the attraction was, what the draw was, what the buzz was. Did it deliver? Did it tell the, tell a story? And I look at, you know, things like Hulk and Andre wasn't fucking buddy Rogers and Luthez. However, there's nothing can match that, that because of the story. And because of the execution of the story, I thought that was just unbelievable, great storytelling. And I look at Steamboat and Flair, they were really good matches. And they were. And you can't take anything away from that. And they do hold up. You know why? Because they were wrestling matches. Right. And I think that when you produce the basics and the fundamentals – that will always be in vogue. And I think that that will always work. Um, you know, I, I look at Shawn Michaels and the undertaker at WrestleMania. Good God. Um, that holds up still today because the fundamentals were there. And for me, the story was there. There was emotion in that because it was, you're talking about one of these well, something's got to go, you know, the streak or the career. And I, I enjoy story a lot. And if you give me a good score, story and execution, then I'm hooked. Let's talk about WrestleMania five. Of course, you're involved at WrestleMania five with Roddy Piper and Morton Downey Jr. This is one of those shows where uh, they're actually trying to counter program you. They're giving away a clash of the champions for free on TBS. And the headline is Flair at Steamboat for the world title. Uh, they did this the prior year with clash of the champions one against WrestleMania four. And I guess this has turned about fair play. You guys tried to counter program their Starcade with, with your survivor series. And then you counter programmed their stampede with, uh, the Royal rumble. what did you think of them trying to counter program you with uh flair steamboat? Hey, more power to them. They, they learned something. Um, and when you go back and you look at WrestleMania five at the time was the, the largest pay-per-view revenue in the history of pay-per-view. So when, when you look at that, go, okay. And that's with the other guys counter-programming us. Yeah. Um, I'll take that. No, that's real. The trilogy comes to an end in May. Uh, they finally have their big payoff and it looks like, uh, flair is going to come out victorious afterwards. There's a post-match angle that's become pretty legendary with Terry Funk, who was assigned to be one of the judges. Uh, steamboat has said he didn't know the whole funk thing was going to happen after the match, but he very quickly realizes, okay, they've, uh, got plans and they don't involve me for the world title picture. Instead, he starts a very brief feud with Lex Luger for Lex's United States title after Lex turns heel by attacking Ricky. They wrestle at the great American bash 89 pay-per-view with Lex winning by DQ after Ricky hit Lex with a chair. 
And then Ricky, Ricky just uh, takes his ball and goes home again. He leaves the soon, uh, the NWA soon after that. Uh, so this is the second time he's left the promotion that way. And, uh, of course he left the WWF in similar fashion. And now he comes back to the WWF in 1991. And this is when things are a little different because no longer are we just having Ricky come out and the karate man outfit and the long black tights and the, the ninja boots. Now we're having him go full blown gimmick. This is a different era. It's 1991. We need uh, goddamn pal. We need you to wear a dragon costume and start blowing fire. Talk to me about how Ricky decides to come back to the company what that meeting is like with Vince. Uh, I think it's been written that when he uh, came back, he goes to Vince's house to meet with him. Were you a part of those meetings? Did you know about them? When did you first hear about the dragon concept? Talk me through this. You know, I, I wasn't part of the meetings with Ricky initially, and I was part of meetings with Vince where he talked about, do we want to bring Ricky Steamboat back? And I don't want to bring back uh, just Ricky Steamboat. I, goddamn, you know, he's, he's the dragon. How do we capitalize on that? I, I want, you know, the dragon. And, and what if he breathed fire? What if he came out and it's the original kind of concept behind it was, you know, like the Chinese dragons that you see in the parades and everything. Sure. Like that kind of an elaborate ring entrance with this big, huge dragon and all this shit going on. And then is there a way that we can breathe fire? Um, the fire breathing was what dictated the rest of the look and what dictated everything else because you could only wear certain materials and do certain things if you're going to go out and breathe fire. So you start, I started exploring, um, alrighty, how to breathe fire. Um, again, kids, this was before Google and the internet and computers. So you didn't have that resource. You start looking in trade magazines and you start looking at, the circus acts and you start looking at, um, Oh, the place on Coney Island, uh, the freak shows and don't mean to offend anybody. That's what they were called. And I, I believe we went out to the gentleman that ran the freak show in Coney Island. We were doing some other things at the Bobby Heenan show and just different stuff. And I remember using him as a resource saying, Hey, you got a fire breather? And he says, I've got a guy. I know a guy. And he's in the circus. Um, the only thing is, is that, you know, these guys are very protective. They don't want to, you know, they're not going to teach, teach you how to do their gimmick type thing because they're not going to want you to then go out and capitalize on it. Long story short, we got in touch with, I think the guy's name was Brian LaPalm. Uh, he was with Great American Circus and trying to track down someone who was on the road all the time, again, without the use of cell phones. You, we finally got a hold of, of him and went back and forth and said, here's what we would like to do and here's what we're looking for from you. Could you... Do you think that you could teach someone how to do what you do? And he's like, man, I've been doing this since I was a kid. 
Um, you just can't learn it overnight. But if they were willing to to put the time in and, and really put the effort in, then yeah, I mean, I, I probably could. It, it's just the discipline. I said, well, what's that worth to you? <laughs> um, how much, you know, how much would, would we need to pay you to, to teach someone how to do it? And we came up with a number. I don't remember how much it was. I think it was maybe 1500 bucks, $2,000, something like that. And where are you going to be for an extended period of time that we could basically just come down and spend the time with you? They were booked in Lauderdale, something like that. Uh, it was the, the East coast of Florida and they were in a, like an old mall parking lot for a week. And so I said, how about we come down and, We'll, you know, in between shows, we'll, we'll train. So this was, this was, uh, me and Steamboat. We went down and, uh, Brian lived in a trailer with his girlfriend. Uh, they were getting married. She was like one of the, the high wire people and he was the fire breather. So they had a nice little trailer on the, on the lot and Ricky and I went. And every day we would go and he, he taught, taught us how he was able to, to breathe fire in the first time, you know, he was, he was very, very, very anal on, on safety and, and checking things and making sure everything's right. So Every time he would do it, you know, he'd check the wind. And, and we're outdoors. We're not in a controlled atmosphere. We are outdoors in a parking lot. And it's, uh, it's a little kabuki-ish, but he shows us how he does it and all this shit. And, and now he's, he's going to blow fire and he's going to do it. And the second time he does it, he blows this huge flume of fire. And it comes back. And his face catches on fire. Oh. And Ricky looks at me and goes, so you want me to fucking blow fire? <laughs> I'm like, I'm sure that doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, his girlfriend's there. We put him out and everything. And, and, uh, and he's fine. A little red faced. And, and that's about it. But, um, and he says, he said the same thing. He goes, man, he goes, look, the only reason that happened, the wind changed on me. He goes, you need to be in a controlled atmosphere. If you're indoors, when you do this, you should be fine. As long as you can, you know, showed him how to, to see which way the wind was blowing with the flame and how to watch the flame and the flame dictates which way you, you blow. And after a week of doing this, you know, steamboat was, he was game and man, he got to where, he did it as good, if not better than, than Brian, um, probably because of his lung capacity and, and, and Ricky, you know, was religious about working out. He was a workout training fanatic and man, steamboat picked it up and it looked cool as shit. So then from there we, we, uh, 
came up with the outfit, the dragon outfit, and were able to to come up with the right materials so that he could he could do it and look like a dragon breathing fire and not catch on fire himself. And each live event and television, it was very important, you know, that you had the fire marshal there and that we were able to do this stunt because it, it basically consisted of putting a bunch of kerosene in your mouth and having a, um, having a, what am I looking for? The, the, the torch, you know, the right kind of torch with the right kind of flame that had been soaked in kerosene as well. So that when they, they hit, you're able to get this big flume of fire and, uh, steamboat, man, he, he had it down and he, he was able to, to fucking do it every night. I thought it was cool as shit. And, and people, people got into it. It was now he really was the dragon because he was able to breathe fire. And we had to have, you know, you had to have people down to put the flame out afterwards and always had someone standing by with a, a fire extinguisher, but also Ricky had to clean his mouth out, you know, immediately afterwards as well. So what you never saw on TV um, people in the arenas did, but you, you never saw on TV where Ricky would, as soon as he was done, would put everything out, get everything down, and then he would clean his mouth out. Had a little spittoon down there to to get everything done. But uh, I thought it was cool shit, and it was it was a lot of fun to spend that time with Ricky. And uh, Ricky was a weird cat, man. He he. Uh, <laughs> I remember we're sitting at the bar the first time that I'd seen Ricky in years. Uh, we're sitting at the bar at the hotel. Came down and, you know, Vince is like, now you got to pitch him this and you got to show him what we're looking for and, and be with him through all of this. And we're sitting down there and I'm talking to him and we ordered uh, shrimp. Shrimp in uh, like cocktail shrimp, but it was in the shell. And so I'm sitting there and, and I, you know, it's peel and eat shrimp. Okay. Think of the first, first word in that description, peel and eat. So I'm peeling my shrimp and Ricky's just eating them. He's just eating it with the shell on everything on man, dipping it in the sauce and just eating it. And he's like, he goes, no man, he goes, shit, you just got to do it this way because it's, it's, it's no big deal, man. Just, uh, it's just shell. And sure enough, Ricky got me where I was eating the fucking peel and eat shrimp without peeling them. And then he got his uh, first time I'd ever heard someone order steak black and blue. Which is they just kiss it on the flame on each side and the inside of it's basically raw. And then he was telling me, he goes, man, he goes, ah, yeah, he goes, I want to get to the point where, where I don't even need it cooked. What? Yeah. His goal was to not even just go buy the cows. I just basically. Yeah. Just cut that fucker up, man. But I had fun with Ricky, man. Ricky, Ricky's a good dude. He's uh, and every time I see Ricky, Ricky tells that story about Brian LaPalm and Bruce, do you remember the time? And, uh, like, yeah, dude, that was fun. That was some fun shit. We, we had a lot of fun on that trip. And by the way, even now, great shape. Looks just like he did back then. Yeah, no shit, man. And and even the hair. I hate that he's got perfect fucking hair too. It's like perfect. It's 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 like a goddamn uh toupee. 
but it's not. And he's good looking and he's in shape. I hate him. Did you, I mean, just to be clear, I know we did it, but do you think Vince had to sell him on the idea of, even though you were NWA champion and you left and you did great. And even though we didn't need to do this with you last time, we think if we can get a little more color, a little more theatrics, you can be an even bigger star. sell more merchandise, get more licensing opportunities. This is how we get to the next level of income. Is that this pitch roughly? Without doubt. And it was true. It provided a lot. It provided a lot more merchandising and a lot more opportunity. And he became a spectacle and he became, you know, larger than life. The guy that breathes fire. You didn't see that a lot of that, you know, it was a, it was a lost art. I wonder if he's rethinking life when that guy shows up the next day with a bunch of goddamn water blisters all over his face. No, he, but he didn't. That was the funny thing. He, the only thing that, uh, he just, it was like a sunburn, but he did, he went right back to it too. That was the other thing that was very important to him. What he, that he told me at the time I didn't, I told Ricky later, but, uh, he was like, he goes, yeah, I had to show him that, you know, sometimes shit happens, but it's not that bad. Cause right after he got the flames put out and everything and he went in and his girlfriend looked at him and all this shit, he was right back out there blowing fire. How much of, uh, when Ricky comes back, he's working opening matches and you know, again, there's nothing wrong with that. You've sold us on the show for years and years that the opening match is very important to the show. And we're not going to argue that, but when he was intercontinental champion, you know, he was headlining the B shows and. When he goes down to the NWA, he becomes world champ and now he's back and he's in the opening matches. Is that done because we've got to reestablish who he is to this audience? Is that done because Vince wants to just test his metal and see where's his head at? Where's his attitude at? Is he going to be a team player? It was done because we hadn't really debuted him on television yet per se. And we had him out doing live events and just wanted him to get his ring legs under him again. So that's the only reason that that was done. I think people look at that shit and, and perceive it. And that's just so fucking ass backwards thinking, but he was put out, he was put out there to, to get out and start working and be in front of the live audiences. And we hadn't done anything on him, on him, on television yet. Let's talk a little bit about when he comes back in 91. Um, and I guess we should mention one of the things that makes him different as far as I know. Ricky's one of the only quote unquote main event guys to work his whole career as a babyface. never heal as far as I know. And then when he returns in 91, uh, he says he actually wanted to try being a heel and allegedly went to talk to Pat and told him he'd like to work heel once before he retires. And Pat tells him he thinks that'd be a mistake and that it would hurt Ricky's career. And Ricky says that let him down because he felt like he knew how to be a heel because he had wrestled the best heels in the business over his career. But he says with the benefit of hindsight, he's glad that Pat said that. And it was probably best in the long run. Do you remember Ricky having some sort of interest of, of being heel? And do you think in hindsight, it was the right call that he never did? Yes to both, because I don't know that Ricky could have, uh, Ricky is a human being, I, I think it's hard not to like him. And that would have been, I think it would have come across as phony for Ricky to be a heel. I think it would have been forced and would have been phony and the audience wouldn't have, have bought it. But I think for Ricky in the, 
in the long run that that would have kind of been a blemish because he was he was the ultimate babyface. So I, I'm not sure that would have been a good been a good for him. And, and yes, he did think that he could pull it off, but it wasn't. Maybe he could have, but I don't know that uh, that it would have been long term, and I don't know how well it really would have been received. Let's talk a little bit about this uh, meeting with Vince. We mentioned it earlier when he came, when he comes back to the company, he goes to Vince's house. They have a meeting. You said you weren't there, but the gist is Ricky says that these guys buried the, the hatchet and Ricky believes that he was promised a main event spot. And Vince tells him he was going to build him back up. It would take about three months. And Ricky says after 10 months, he's still doing opening matches. So he starts to ask Vince when they're going to do an angle. And Vince tells him the next TV taping, but that never happens. And Ricky says he's asking every two weeks about it and nothing comes of it. And one time Ricky was flying and during a layover, he called Vince and gave him his two week notice, finish out his two week notice and leaves. And ironically, he's leaving around the same time that Rick is coming in to the WWF. And Ricky said at the last TV tapings, they wanted him to work with IRS and undertaker and do a stretcher job for both. And Ricky flat refused to do it. He said that he put IRS and undertaker over in the middle. And Ricky said, when he told Vince that the place was sold out with 20,000 people, if he does one stretcher job and comes back and does another one, 20 minutes later, what will people think of the business? Again, at the time, there's no internet wrestling doesn't have the inside exposure that it has these days. And it's still very much protected, but Ricky eventually tells Vince that he wouldn't do that to the business or to your company. And, uh, either way, Ricky says that Vince told him, if you won't do stretcher jobs, you're terminated right now. He says, okay. And leaves. I know you weren't there for the conversation, but you've probably heard about it. What'd you make of this? Yeah. I I don't think I was even with the company at that time. Um, so I don't really know. And I don't know that I ever heard anything about it after the fact, other than the reputation that Ricky had was is if Ricky doesn't, if Ricky's not on top and in the top spot, then he wasn't interested in sticking around. And that was the reputation. That was the perception. I think that, um, people had because it was the same thing in the NWA when he lost the championship and felt he wasn't going to be the main event and be the top guy with everything around him. Then he didn't want to stay there either. Want to come back to WWE. So, Uh, That was the perception, and whether, you know, accurate or not, but you kind of look at the pattern. Okay, well, I'm I'm not in the main event, and I'm not in top, then I want to leave. So I think it's all subjective, and like I said, there's always two sides to every story. I I couldn't imagine them doing two stretcher jobs in one night either, but I wasn't there, so I don't know. How would you compare and contrast his approach towards the wrestling business with say a Roddy Piper, obviously one's a baby face, one's a heel. I mean, Roddy did both, but you know what I'm saying? Cause it does feel like they were both very involved in what am I doing? What is the creative? And if I don't like it, I don't have to do it. I'll go do something else. And I think that's something they have in common. Would you disagree? No, I wouldn't disagree. I just think maybe the approach, because I think Piper, uh, Piper would figure out ways to make things work. 
and you feel like, and, 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 and Steamboat just wanted to take his ball and go home sort of deal. I think that Ricky, Ricky wanted you to either figure it out or I'll just go home. And, and again, that's, I didn't get a work hands on with Ricky that much other than, you know, this very short time here. Um, so that was that in and of itself was, was a little bit different, but I always enjoyed my time working with Ricky cause I thought he was a hell of a performer. And also look, you can be a hell of a performer and an asshole. Ricky was a hell of a performer and a nice guy. Right. So no, I think great. that, that great. that's what helped him. Do you think, uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to be weird. Uh, and I want you to give an answer that actually think about it a minute. Do you think that Vince had any sort of resentment over the fact that steamboat had left so many times and, or do you think he just felt like I'm not, I don't have confidence that this guy's going to stick around. So I don't want to invest another, uh, a huge amount of time and effort and energy and exposure and money in a guy who may decide I'm tired. I need to go home or I don't like the creative. I need to go home. Do you think it was a reliability issue in Vince's mind that kept him from going with him with the dragon gimmick in 91? No, I don't because Vince gives second, third, fourth, fifth chances to a lot of guys. And Vince feels that when he speaks to someone, he takes them at their word and he takes them at face value at that time. So Vince is the attorney eternal optimist in that way and is willing to say, no, look, they say they want to work. They say they want to embrace this and they want to do it. Then let's fucking do it. Um, why sometimes then, then why the, the other side doesn't feel that way. I know you weren't there, but then why didn't he do it? Why didn't he go with him in, in 91? Well, I, I don't know that he didn't. And, and from everything you just said, it was Ricky who left and, you know, Ricky who was unhappy because he wasn't, in a main event spot and, and wanted to leave, gave his notice. And then I said, okay, well, let's get these two angles or whatever they wanted to do. And again, I don't know what that is and you get the most out of you, but let's beat that up for a minute because it's been said over years and, and you've insinuated this too, that in meetings, sometimes if somebody really starts to push for something, and I think maybe you gave the example of Heyman years ago that Heyman really wanted to do X, uh, and maybe it wasn't Heyman, it was someone else, but someone was constantly saying, we should do this. We should do this. We should do this. It becomes a thing where Vince hears it enough. He just ain't going to fucking do it just because you've beat him over the head with it so long. Is that part of his personality? Do you think that maybe had something to do with steamboat here where Vince just feels like, trust me and have some patience and we're going to get there. But when Ricky grows impatient and just hammers it every two weeks and every time he sees him, it becomes something where rather than looking forward to creating something, it becomes something he just dreads even dealing with and just doesn't want to fuck with it. I think yes and no. Um, it really depends on the situation and, and depends on, on that pitch. So sometimes it can be, so if it's a great, it idea, annoyingly yeah. so. But if it's a great idea, he'll go with it. But if it's an okay, idea, yeah. he don't want to deal with a bunch of bullshit. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he wasn't losing much sleep over it. And you're not either because you're sleeping on a purple mattress these days. And you and I both know that sleep is important and the quality of your sleep affects the quality of your daily life. We can tell on this show when you're not getting any sleep and you're a grumpy old bastard. 
Uh, hey, well, it just, it's true. Better sleep, better you. And if you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you just got to try a purple mattress. And here's why we believe in purple. Purple was created by a couple of dudes who are brothers and they had been developing cushioning technology for like three decades for stuff like wheelchairs and medical beds. And then four or five years ago, they decided to take their patented comfort technology and create the world's most scientific mattress purple. And we're saying this because the purple mattress will probably feel different than anything you've ever experienced. It's a brand new material developed by shoot rocket scientists. It's not memory foam. Like they're used to. This is a material that feels unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time, but it's going to give you comfort, but still keep everything really supported. And it gives you almost like a zero gravity like feel. It works for any sleeping position on your back, on your stomach, maybe your side sleeper like me. It's breathable, and I love that as a fat dude. It's going to keep you cool. But here's how you know it's a great product when they throw this at you 100 night risk free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund after 100 nights. Come on. It's also backed by a 10 year warranty. They offer free shipping and returns, but you're not going to return it. They offer free in home setup. They'll even take out your old mattress. You're going to love purple. Well, can, can, I, can I talk more about free, though? Please do. Okay, and why you're going to love purple? Because right now our listeners are getting a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site wide. I mean, but all you got to do is text Russell to 84 888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text Russell to 84-888 that's w-r-e-s-t-l-e to 84-888 now message and data rights may apply i love giving away free shit i hate when you give away free stuff but you're gonna love purple do it right now text wrestle 84-888 that's 84-888 the word wrestle gets you a free purple pillow bruce loves his i love mine you're gonna love purple we guarantee it man and Jay-Z Flair, shout out to him. Him and Chelsea have put a lot of miles on their purple mattress. Uh, let's talk about Ricky here. He returns to WCW in November of 1991. He has great success here. He's a mystery partner for Dustin Rhodes. They're going to beat Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco to become tag champs. He's later going to beat Steve Austin for the, deep, uh, for the TV title. He's going to team up with Shane Douglas, and they're going to win the tag titles from Dustin and Barry. They're going to have an awesome feud with the Hollywood Blondes over the tag titles. Um, really, really phenomenal stuff. Uh, they even have a U.S. title match with Steve Austin, where Ricky ultimately gets the belt August 24th, 1994. And then eventually Ricky hurts his back in Roanoke with Steve Austin. Can't wrestle anymore. He's the U.S. champ at the time. So uh, he's got about two months left on his contract. WCW fires him because he can't wrestle and he's out of the business for like nine years or so going to make some random appearances here or there for places like TNA and ring of honor does some stuff with CM Punk and Mick Foley. And then he returns to the company in 2005 as an agent. How does this come about? You were there. What does this look like for him to come back in 05 as an agent? I think John, John Laurinaitis was in talent relations at the time. And we're always looking for good producers and that can come in and put together a match. And I think that Ricky just by example of some of the matches that he's had over the years in his style would be able to work with young talent, helping them put together matches. And, and it's not just putting together, 
you know, fucking high spots and shit. It's about why you do the moves you do and how you should sell moves that are done to you. So Ricky was one of those talents that put a lot of thought into the story of the match and into why you do the things you do. And that's something that was missing then. And I think it's something that's still missing today. Um, and that was the reason he was brought in to try and help teach some of the younger talent and, and help them apply logic to what they do in the ring. There's been rumors that in 2006, Steamboat told the WWE management, he wants to come out of retirement to wrestle Ric Flair at WrestleMania 22, but it doesn't happen. Do you remember hearing that? And, and would you have been a proponent of that? Would you have liked it? I, I don't remember hearing it. Um, probably didn't make it much further because of Ricky's back and because of his injury, he wasn't able to have matches anymore. And that just wasn't going to happen. I think that we had all looked at, you know, Ricky had, had seen his, the last of his wrestling days due to his injuries. In a six and a seven, he referees a few matches for the WWE title, uh, including a match between John Cena and edge in Australia. And then, uh, Cena and Randy Orton in California in 07, he has an appearance at WrestleMania 23, uh, various legends are having a small dance party in the background. And he's briefly recognized at a vengeance pay-per-view as a former intercontinental champion. He makes another appearance the night, the night after Ric Flair lost his, uh, loser must retire match or his retirement match rather from Shawn Michaels, WrestleMania 24. He's, uh, on the February 23rd, 2009 episode of raw when he's named one of the uh hall of famers and here he's attacked by chris jericho who then begins a feud with the hall of famers and of course jericho was a big fan of steamboat and you can actually see a picture online of ricky steamboat signing an autograph for a teenage chris jericho of course we mentioned he goes in the 2009 class and the other guy who goes in at that time is one of the guys he had a lot of classic matches with in wcw Steve Austin. He also will go into the uh, Luthez Hall of Fame in 2009 and the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame in 96, the NWA Hall of Fame in 2012. So, a Hall of Famer across the board. His first match in a long time, though, happens on the big stage, WrestleMania 25. And uh, it's Steamboat with Roddy Piper and Jimmy Snuka all taking on Chris Jericho. What did you think of that? I know you weren't there, but you probably saw the match. The idea of all these legends coming out to take on Jericho, of course, this on the heels of the movie, the wrestler, uh, were you for it against it? What'd you think? I, I thought it was a nice, a nice feature for Chris and, and it was a nice feature for those guys and, and Chris doing what he did was make everything around him mean something and, uh, bring some legends back to life. So I actually was there. I was sitting in the second row, um, at Reliance stadium. So, uh, with, with, and I got, I, you know, it's funny. I got a few requests for this with Robert G Taylor, the second from RGT for law.com. Um, if you were a loved one, <laughs> that's all suffer from mesothelioma or any legal needs. I'd give Rob Taylor a call by God. We should mention uh, later in 09, he's going to team up with his son, Richie Steamboat, to wrestle in Puerto Rico. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about Richie, but um, I do think that he's one of those guys where a lot of people thought, man, one day 
Reed Flair, Richie Steamboat. They're going to keep this thing going. And then it just didn't work out. Uh, December 2013, uh, he was released from his WWE contract. Do you think that, and obviously we know that his dad has stated due to the injury, he was not going to be able to wrestle again. Do you think that Richie Steamboat had a, had a big upside had he not been injured? You know, I, I think so, but I never got to see enough of him in the ring to, to give you a accurate assessment. Um, he had a great look, but I don't know that. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, there've been a lot of, there've been a lot of greats whose siblings did not do well in the business. You mean so? You said siblings, but you mean sons. You know what I mean? I meant, yeah. I meant, yeah, children. Yeah. What the fuck. Well, siblings too. Sure. Um, but yeah, that, that have had children that that haven't done well in the business. So I never got to see enough of Richie to say one way or the other. You should go out of your way if you've never seen this to see the June twenty eighth, twenty ten episode of Raw. Steamboat's here to promote his uh, his new DVD, but he's attacked by Nexus. And they're supposed to beat him up and quote unquote, get the heat on him, but something goes wrong. And, uh, he lands very, very badly. He's hospitalized. They have to remove part of his skull to relieve the pressure. It's a real bad situation. He's legitimately hospitalized for weeks after that. Uh, he would also work as an NXT trainer and in talent relations with triple H until the developmental release of his son in 2013. And then he later moved on to be an ambassador. And then on the February 25th, 2019 episode of raw steamboat, along with special guests, Sean Michaels and Kurt angle and sting all appeared to celebrate the 70th birthday of Ric Flair. But of course, Ric Flair was attacked by Batista instead of appearing on screen, man, that's an interesting shot. I wonder who helped put that together. Uh, so, hmm. so the titles that Ricky wound up winning in his career, of course, the NWA world title, one time, the mid Atlantic title, two times the U S title, four times the TV title, four times. The Mid-Atlantic Tag Titles five times, three with Paul Jones, one with Dino Bravo, one with Jay Youngblood. The WCW slash NWA Tag Titles eight times, five times with Jay Youngblood, once with Paul Jones, once with Dustin Rhodes, once with Shane Douglas. Of course, most famously, probably the Intercontinental Title one time. Overall, man, there's a lot of gold here. What do you think his legacy will wind up being in professional wrestling? Because... I always sort of picture him as the NWA world champion and, and most probably most prominently the intercontinental title champion, but dude, he won so many tag titles and it was always a baby face. What do you think his legacy will be? I think Ricky's legacy is going to be WrestleMania three versus Randy Savage, that one match. And for me, I think that's a good match to kind of reflect on his career because it was the best of the best. And when you look at everything else that he accomplished, that's the one thing that I think most would agree on. And he's truly one of the greats of the business that, that was able to, he did the territories and he did well, the territories transitioned to the big stage and went back and forth and, uh, just a tremendous talent. But I think that the, the one thing when you ask people, Hey, what was the best WrestleMania match ever? I think that, a large percentage of people would say Randy Savage versus Ricky Steamboat WrestleMania three. It's fascinating to me why some guys are perceived as tippy top guys and others are not, you know, both of those guys, both Randy Savage and Ric Flair 
two most famous opponents of Rick Steamboat. They're viewed with more fanfare than Ricky Steamboat ever was. Do you think that's based on, you know, their charisma, their promos, their ability to work as a heel, or was it just their ability to sort of weather the storm? Because it does feel like whenever things weren't going exactly as Steamboat wanted, he just removed himself from the situation, which is probably a healthy thing to do mentally because this business can be a drain. And if you've paid attention to some of the folks who've been in it, that's very well evidenced. But at the same time, you wonder if that also hurt him from really having that sustained top guy run and you're uniquely qualified to answer. What do you think kept him from being in that sort of Mount Rushmore conversation? I think that probably taking himself out of the game in some situations, but other than that, I think the personality and Ricky was always kind of downplayed because that's who he is as a person. And Ricky's not an over the top guy and people will remember the personality first. And this business has proven time and time again, a larger personality will be remembered longer than the greatest Matt genius in the world. So, uh, to me, that's, that was what was missing. And I think that was the it factor that kept him there. But at the same time, you you look at his career and Ricky had a hell of a career on top and was always viewed as a dancing partner that the heels wanted on the other side of him. You know, the stuff he did with Jake Roberts, Ric Flair, Savage, uh, you know, good God, honky tonk, man, everybody along the way. I think if you touch Rick Steamboat, you learn something and that's a good thing. Well, coming up next week, we're hoping you're going to learn something about Val Venus. If you've got a question, well, hang on. I'm making an audible. I'm making an audible Connie. Before we get to I know the, this, we haven't even talked about this. Before we get I was going to wait the, till we're off the air. Before we get to the audible, let me tease it. And then we'll do some Twitter questions and we'll come back to your audible. Okay. I think we're doing Val Venus next week. That may change. Stay tuned. But if you want to ask a question, <laughs> go ask it at Pritchard show. And, uh, we gave you the same opportunity to ask questions about Ricky, the dragon steamboat. Hundreds of you did. So of course we can't get all those in. We are going to hit a few rapid fire. Bruce, are you ready? I guess. Well, <laughs> uh, Mike, Michael Eldridge writes, Bruce, even if you weren't in the meeting, can you reenact what you think it might've sounded like when Vince pitched Ricky, the dragon character fire motherfucker, breathe it. Uh, Charlie thrower writes in all your years in creative, did you ever discuss having Ricky turn heel? Maybe a discussion, but not a very long one. Uh, heroes punching 2099 writes, does Bruce have an interesting story about Ricky's dragon? About his drag, uh, the kimono dragon. Yeah. He, the, the, it escaped one time. What? I think they had it backstage and, uh, the fucking Kimono dragon escaped and they lost it. He also continues the question. And by dragon, I mean, Bonnie, we haven't talked about Bonnie at all, but when you talk about Ricky steamboat way back in the day for right, right or wrong, you hear a lot of criticism of his relationship with Bonnie and how Bonnie sort of maybe wasn't the best thing for steamboats career at different times. Why do people think or say that? 
I don't know because I, I met Bonnie one time in my life. I, I could not tell you one way or another. Um, I think that people did did criticize her, but I didn't know her. I couldn't tell you one way or another. So no issues from your end with Bonnie? Not with me, no. Ricky Morton's mullet writes in, was there ever any thought to giving Ricky a mouthpiece like a Jimmy Hart? Yeah, there was, but at the same time, I, I don't think that would have worked for a baby face. And I think that might've, might've taken him down. I think that the idea was to dress Ricky up a little bit more and, and add some color to him in, in other ways, like the, the, the Kung Fu stuff and, and the dragon thing to try and enhance him. James Stewart writes, was there ever any talk of making steamboat the WWF champion? No, no, not that I can ever No, not, not from my end or anything that I can ever remember hearing. Let's pretend for a minute. Let's pretend it's the 1980s. Let's pretend that Ricky's doing his karate man gimmick at the time. Kung Fu movies and karate and ninja stuff was at an all time high. Not only at the box office, but certainly when he went to the video cassette stores to rent a movie from Blockbuster or Video Express or Movie Gallery or whatever. Was there ever a consideration let's make him a a bad guy to Hulk Hogan? Not that I can ever remember, no. I think Ricky was one of those. Um, and it's funny, Hulk was also viewed this way, by the way. He was one of those guys that, that they felt was always just going to be a baby face. A wrestling Obviously Hulk was able to change that perception. A wrestling historian writes in what were the plans for steamboat? If he hadn't left the WWF in 91. So you're working with him. You're pitching in the fire. You're working with creative a little bit. I mean, I know you're doing more production at that time, but did you have any idea of what the goal was eventually with this character? Like, Oh, I could see him with X, Y, Z. I don't remember off the top of my head. I know that, you know, it was during a time that obviously you look at that time, there were a lot more gimmicks and that was the thought behind it. Make Ricky more of a gimmick and make him a larger than life gimmick, uh, to come in and, and make steamboat an attraction. So that was the feel. And that was more of the goal at that time. Then once that attraction and gimmick gets over, you can pretty much put him with anybody. I know this is a silly question, but we've talked a lot about how guys had issues with the way the undertaker was pushed. As soon as he comes into the company, we've talked a little bit about the Hogan disagreement. We've talked a little bit about the accident with dropping Coco on his head. Do you think undertaker had any sort of ill will towards Ricky because he wouldn't do the stretcher job for him when he was still trying to get that character over? Well, a, I don't know if that's true and if that really happened, but, uh, B I don't know where everybody gets undertaker was, was pushed to the moon when he came in. Yes. He had an impressive first night, but it took almost a year before undertaker was involved in, in a major storyline. And yes, he did get pushed right to the top of the major storyline, but it wasn't overnight. You know, his first WrestleMania he worked with Jimmy Snuka in like the second match. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't just here's undertaker. Now he's the top guy. It was, it was a slow build to get to that point. Mr. Perfect, uh, can a fan Canada writes in, I know steamboat was on his way out after WrestleMania four, but why in the heck wasn't a savage steamboat rematch done in the tournament? Savage could have gone over clean and made an even bigger star as everyone knew he was getting the belt. Uh, well, 
let's take aside his opinions there, but realistically, I think most people, when they see that bracket, they just assume they're getting it. Is that the very reason you don't give it to him? No, because as I said earlier, it was about Randy Savage on that day. And it was about Savage getting over as a baby face and putting him with another strong baby face would not have helped that cause. Uh, Jonathan Wagner makes an interesting observation. Was there ever a consideration of changing his name to Rick Steamboat instead of Ricky? And he points out that heels were Rick's, whether it was Rick Rude or Ricky Flair, but baby faces were Ricky, like Ricky Morton or Ricky Steamboat. I don't know that I never really thought about that. Yeah, that's in in the box of gimmicks in the book of of baby face and heel names. The fuck. Brandon O'Shea writes in Texas Tornado and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Uh, it is interesting that you've got two big territory stars, and you come in, give them an, a new uh, paint of coat, as we like to say. Um, Dodge Singh writes, "Where did you get the dragon from?" Dragon. Well, I, the name or dragon. No, the no, Kimono no. Dragon? The actual from animal. the Kimono Dragon came from Dragons R Us. Thank you, thank you. Makes me happy. I appreciate that. I, I was confused on the question momentarily. No, no, I got you. It hap- It happens at my age. Well, it is fairly early for you. It it fucking is. Adam Worth wants to know whose idea was it to have Bonnie and Richie at ringside for WrestleMania Four. Probably Ricky's. Uh. Lots of questions about, was there any heat on Butch Reed for missing his championship match? Or was it just, oh, well, too bad for him and on to the next town. Yeah. And again, that's one of those things that that I don't remember. I think that Butch was inventing the internet at that time. Anyway, man, every now and again, we'll get a silly question that you won't get at all, but angry, angry Browns fan writes in Did Vince want him to team up with a lookalike and call him the double dragons. I know you don't get the reference because it was a video game. But that fucking made me chuckle. Uh, Lanny Poff, this is from Chris. He writes in Lanny Poffo said Randy Savage saw Shawn Michaels as a potential dance partner that could possibly top his WrestleMania three match with Steamboat. On the flip side, in the WWF, who possibly could have given him a better feud than Savage? And is Bret Hart the best option? I don't know if Bret Hart was the best option at the time, though. No. Lots of uh, folks want us to uh, pay attention to his match with Bret Hart at Boston garden. It's March 8th, 1986. It's an unknown classic. Do you know if you ever saw that one? I know it was before you were there, but apparently it became a, a tape trading sensation. I don't know that I ever had. That would have been the day before my birthday. I, you know, so. we, we sort of buried the lead here, but, uh, the George Steele thing, we sort of just glossed over. Has there been a way to jump from two opponents more different. I mean, when you think about who Savage was working with at the time to go from George, the animal steel to Ricky, the dragon steamboat, as you like to say, that's apples and pomegranates, is it not? Nice. Yeah. But you kept, you kept the animal involved in it with, with Liz. And so there was still that, that connective tissue. Uh, Josh r- brings up the old Al snow debate he says, Al snow has said the steamboat savage match at WrestleMania three started the issue of match quality over butts and seats. Do you agree? And was this match better than Hogan Andre? And of course, Al snow argues better is what drew the most money, not necessarily what drew the most critical praise because it's the wrestling business. Where do you land on that argument? I, I agree because it was, you know, what was the better story and, you know, what drew the house? 
nobody, I'm not going to say nobody, but 95% of that audience was there to see Hogan Andre. And that story was bigger and better than Savage Steamboat. Hypothetically, do you think if Flair, because we know that when Steamboat's leaving, Flair's coming in, do you think when Flair came into the company, Vince would have considered putting him and, and Steamboat together again? You've got the flamboyant nature boy with the big robes. You could have had the more elaborate dragon entrance with the fire breathing. We know that Flair's going to win the title in January 92. Would that have been a possibility for him? Or do you think that he still would have ultimately went with Savage and he just didn't see Steamboat in that light? He being Vince. No, I think that Steamboat would have been great in that role. And that may have been what he was looking for. Um, because I knew, do know that Piper was kind of a, a last minute, let, let's put Piper there for Flair because mm. that's who, who Flair worked with initially coming in. Yeah. Maybe Steamboat would have fit that bill well, but. I couldn't tell you what they were thinking at that time, man. That would have been something else. Ryan Dockery writes in, do you think Brett takes so much, too much credit for paving the way for smaller wrestlers carrying titles when guys like Ricky steamboat had the big belts before him? You know, I do think that's an interesting concept because, uh, the, the company was definitely the land of the giants. There's definitely a paradigm shift with Brett Hart, but Ricky steamboat and Brett Hart, pretty similar in size, huh? Actually, Brett's bigger than Steamboat. And so, you know, you, you look at it that way. But uh, as far as the main championship, I think Brett was. Brett can take that credit. Interesting change and uh, maybe a paradigm shift. This is from the pop culture junkie. So Steamboat would bring the Komodo Dragon uh, to the ring with him, similar to how the Bulldogs had Matilda and Coco Beware had Frankie. Why did Vince stop having animal mascots for superstars? And do you think we'll ever bring them back? You never say never. It, it becomes a, a pretty tough, uh, tough road to haul with, with PETA and with all of the animal rights folks that are out there. And when you, you look at that, it's just, eh, that's a rough life for an animal. No, without question. It is, uh, Danny wants to know, was there ever any discussion of pushing Bonnie steamboat to be a manager similar to the way Miss Elizabeth was for Randy Savage? Nope. Adam B writes in Rick Flair said that Ricky Steamboat is the best baby face ever. Do you agree? I think he's one of the best. Yes. Francis writes in who would win in a karate fight, Bruce Pritchard or Ricky Steamboat. Oh my God. I'm a real karate man. A Three real. time black belt hall of fame. A real come on, karate man. How many times? He, hey, hey, okay. I asked you this question. How many times has Ricky Steamboat been in the black belt hall of fame? I don't know. Uh, the last part of what you just said is the correct answer. No, none, none, zero, zilch, boncos. Boncos? That's a, that's a thing, boncos? It is now. Rich writes in. Boncos, bitch. <laughs> That'll be a t-shirt soon enough. Rich writes in. He talked about how Damien was usually a local snake. Was Ricky's dragon a local dragon? It depended on if there was a one of those fucking Kimona dragons RS franchises in the town. Now I think he traveled his Kimona. Lots of talk about Ricky's intercontinental title run. Of course, his time with the intercontinental title is the first time we see, uh, or the belt he had was the first Reggie parks designed intercontinental title. It was in a prior life, the old trophy style, uh, and the old Milkovich's or whatever the fucking guy's name is. But now, 
uh, the more iconic classic intercontinental title design. And his was different. The first one was different. Instead of the WWF letters being raised, they were recessed and painted red. Is that your favorite intercontinental title design ever? Yeah, I like that. I like that one. Yes. The one that Ricky had. Yes. I don't know about fucking recessed or raised letters. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, but I did like that design. Well, and we enjoyed the show today and I thought we had a good plan for what we're doing next week, but it does sound as if you've got something up your sleeve. Do you want to reveal it now? Or is it just going to be a fucking surprise? I want to do ask, ask Bruce because it's, it's my birthday and, uh, on the seventh and we're going to have to record it early. So there you go. Well, well, what if, what if we already had the Val Venus format done? You know what? People are just going to have to fucking tune in and see. (laughs) Tune in next week. We don't know what the fuck we're doing, but it'll be good. Each week, every Friday, right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Shakaka! I think it's that, man. I'm going to go and I'm trying to figure out, man, where to go to lunch. I don't want to go by myself. I'm going to go see a Pancho Villas around, bitch. No, it's Bonco's, bitch. Say it as Pancho. Bonko's bish. <laughs> John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.